What is progress, and how do we measure it? How far have we progressed as a species? Have we progressed further than modern American natives? Are we an advanced civilization? Are there primitive civilizations? Are these questions ethnocentric or even racist? Join me on today's podcast and we'll discuss these questions and more. I identify as a girl. I also identify as an Aggie. My definition as an American sort of varies from person to person. Personally, I identify as an American. But due to my parents' background, some people aren't accepting of the fact that I am the child of two, two immigrants. So they also identify me as an immigrant or an alien or any other synonym there is to an immigrant. I try not to let it get to me, but despite what other people think of me, I still identify as American. Thank you for sharing that with us, Jocelyn. Your experience is similar to that of millions of other Americans across the country. And you touched on an important point, and that is that you can have many identities uh, at the same time. You can identify as an American. You could identify as an immigrant or the child of immigrants. Of course, other people will put you into categories or identities as well. And each of these categories has a symbolic meaning to the people who use them. So American means one thing to you, and immigrant means one thing to you, and immigrant means something slightly different perhaps to somebody else. Immigrants and immigration has been in the news quite a bit lately, and there's been a rise in people voicing their opinions about what they think immigrants mean for this country. And sometimes people forget what it means for the immigrants who are coming here. That they're coming here for a better life, for more opportunities, for freedoms. And so their children can grow up in a better place. You're a great example of that. I'd be willing to bet, by the way you're saying it, that you'll be the first generation of your immigrant family to get a college education. That right there is part of the American dream. And for every person that regards you as different because you're from an immigrant family, uh, keep in mind that there's there's a hundred people out there who just regard you as a great example of an American and the American dream. Every American has a story. Sometimes I forget small how many part of interesting your story stories there are sitting in front of me when I teach class every day. I'm really glad that you chose to share that. The term progress always makes me uncomfortable when talking about culture. By definition, progress should be making something better than there was before. But that's such a subjective measure. 
when my I buy a computer and my computer is better than the one that's before, I guess I'm pretty comfortable saying that that's progress. But progress can be measured on so many different levels. Are we making progress, for example, when we build a new dam or when a new freeway goes through an area that wasn't served by a freeway before? I mean, that's certainly progress. I think we all, as Americans, understand that that's progress. But we also understand that sometimes bad things come with progress. If a new freeway goes through, it's great for some people, for some, for merchants and truckers and, and people who need to get from point A to point B that are joined by a highway. But it might not be so great for the landowners who own land in between. It might not be so great for the people who live in the towns at point A or B that have more traffic coming to and from. It might not be too good for the people at point A and B who suffer from higher pollution rates. Perhaps some would say progress would have been better served by making a a light rail or um, a mass transit system of some kind. But today I wanted to comment on John Bodley's 1998 article called The Price of Progress. For him, he's talking about progress as it applies to indigenous people. Whether we like it or not, progress includes things like building roads into the Amazon, encouraging farmers in Africa to grow cash crops instead of the food crops, encouraging pastoralists to raise animals for sale on the open market rather than raising animals for their personal needs. It's sort of incorporation into the world system is considered progress by most economists. Unfortunately, standard of living is a, a is a difficult thing to measure and and when it's usually measured by economists uh, they end up uh, measuring numbers usually they have to do with money like gross domestic product or gross national product per capita income capital formation employment rates literacy um, formal education etc so they look to see all of these values and they measure them and they try to see if they are increasing. Um, consumption of manufactured goods is another uh, measure that supposedly measures uh, standard of living. Um, the number of doctors or hospitals per thousand people is another factor that they measure. Uh, what's interesting is that even though those are very ethnocentric ways of measuring progress, because you're really not, um, when you measure those numbers, you're not measuring whether people can satisfy their own needs. You're measuring employment, essentially. You're measuring their ability to make money. Whereas in their sort of previous worlds, they might have been meeting all of their needs and they might have been had a well-developed social system that they knew how to climb, they knew how to manage. But now you're thrusting them into a, a capitalist system and you're expecting them to be able to make progress when you just got done thrusting them into the system at the lowest rung of the ladder. So when I went to Africa, I could tell that there were families, um, there were Turkana families, 
some of whom were better off than others. But money it was not a significant way of being able to measure that difference because they had what was predominantly a cashless economy, but they still had a system in place. The better off families had more cattle, for starters. Their family members were respected leaders in the community. People looked up to them. The children had better prospects for mates. They seemed to have lots of allies. They seemed to have lots of nearby relatives. They seemed to be very secure in who they were. And of course, along with that security came food security as well as personal security. Now, one of the aspects of being really poor in a capitalist country is that you have no food security and you have no personal security or very little. It's easy for you to be taken advantage of when you're ultra poor in uh, a capitalist economy. But when you're in a cashless economy, those rules don't apply. So the question we ask then is, uh, when you're talking about progress, does progress or economic development, in this case, increase or decrease a given culture's ability to satisfy the physical and psychological needs of its population? And I find that we're back again. As usual, we're back to Malinowski's biopsychological needs. Are people's biological and psychological needs being met? Is progress or economic development increasing or decreasing their ability to satisfy these needs? And quite often the answer is economic development is doing nothing to increase their ability to meet those needs. In fact, quite often it's doing just the opposite. Careful examination of the data shows that when development comes to places where people are already in a self-sufficient cashless economy, that economic development lowers their standard of living rather than raises it. John Bodley puts it this way, Despite the best intentions of those who have promoted change and improvement, all too often the results have been poverty, longer working hours, and much greater physical exertion, poor health, social disorder, discontent, discrimination, overpopulation, and environmental deterioration. Part 2. Diseases of Development Perhaps it would be useful for public health specialists to start talking about a new category of diseases. Such diseases could be called the diseases of development and would consist of those pathological conditions which are based on the usually unanticipated consequences of the implementation of developmental schemes. Hughes and Hunter, 1972 According to John Bodley in The Price of Progress, economic development increases the disease rate of affected peoples in at least three ways. First of all, it makes populations suddenly become more vulnerable to the diseases suffered almost exclusively by, quote, advanced people, such as diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. These sorts of issues skyrocket in communities that have been newly incorporated into the uh, economic world system. One of the reasons that this happens is because when you're encouraged to buy your food from the market instead of collecting it 
in a wild space. You're moving from what's essentially an organic and healthy um, food source to canned foods or processed foods. As you might know, when you buy the cheapest of the canned and processed foods, you're also buying the least healthy, quite often the highest fat content leading to obesity, the saltiest food leading to hypertension, and the combination of those two things leading to diabetes. One of the favored foods of uh, in American Samoa was canned corned beef made into a variety of dishes. Um, a, two, a single two ounce serving of canned corned beef has 160 calories, 110 of those calories from fat. That's a full 12 grams of fat, 420 milligrams of sodium, which is over 18% of your RDA, your recommended daily allowance. And if someone eats more than one serving, we're talking about um, getting almost 100% of your daily sodium intake from uh, a single sitting of eating canned corned beef that's made into a meal, my favorite of which was called pisupo. Uh, and uh, 12, 24, 48 grams of fat, which is more than the fat content of a typical uh, Big Mac. But it's economical and it's tasty, um, but it shouldn't be surprising that diabetes and obesity are major concerns on the island. Well, the second way that uh, development uh, makes people more vulnerable is by when you, at least when their diet is changed dramatically, is it disturbs sort of the natural environment, the balances of their bacteria, their, their good bacteria in their bodies, which have evolved essentially or co-evolved along with people to help protect them from local diseases and parasites. When you shift their diet to a new food type, uh, people become vulnerable to to bacteria and parasites that at one time and finally they become more vulnerable if they become impoverished they become vulnerable from malnourishment or malnutrition I and mean, this is particularly problematic if people are moving or people are moving into slums slums with poor sanitation and poor drinking water um, and this is typical in a place uh, like Nairobi in, in Africa. If someone chose to leave their pastoralist world out in the country and they chose to come to look for a, a wage-paying job in Nairobi, first of all, the chances are good that they wouldn't be able to find one. But if they did find one, chances are good that the only place that they might be able to afford to live would be a slum with... Um, with uh, poorly treated or untreated drinking water and high rates of diseases like cholera and tuberculosis and without a traditional socioeconomic system to support, help support them they would be poorly situated to take advantage of what limited health resources existed at all in that environment because even though development quite often comes with some health resources, clinics and hospitals, those uh, available access to those uh, resources are not equally distributed. Um, they too require uh, an income to take advantage of usually. Um, and more often than not, there are not nearly enough health services for the populations to be supported. When you move into a city environment, uh, chances are your diet's gonna change dramatically. Your diet might now consist of rice or cornmeal 
made in a variety of ways. It's uh, not particularly nutritional, um, but it does get you the calories you need to exist. But the conversion to that, but conversion to that, and conversion to that meal because it allows you to exist even though you're malnourished. Um, there's more children are surviving, populations are rising. It ends up being the only way you can feed your family is on these poor quality um, diets. Uh, but you end up with large populations of malnourished individuals. John Bodley puts it this way in his article, Diet change occurs when formerly self-sufficient peoples find that wage labor, cash cropping, and other economic development activities that feed tribal resources into the world market economy must inevitably divert time and energy away from the production of subsistence foods. Many developing peoples suddenly discover that, like it or not, they are unable to secure traditional foods and must spend their newly acquired cash on costly and often nutritionally inferior manufactured foods. Dietary changes that are linked to involvement in the world market economy have tended to lower rather than raise the nutritional levels of the affected tribal peoples. Pastoralism is the practice of herding livestock as the primary economic activity of a society. Pastoralists depend almost exclusively on their animals for all their economic needs. Pastoralist societies are very common in East Africa, especially Sudan, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. Swidden agriculture is a low-intensity agricultural practice wherein a section of jungle or forest is cleared and then planted with food crops for just a few years. Ultimately, these plots are abandoned and new gardens are set up elsewhere in the jungle. For this reason, Swidden agriculture is sometimes called shifting cultivation to reflect the fact that the farmers shift their garden locations from time to time. Both of these agricultural practices, pastoralism and Swidden agriculture, were indefinitely sustainable activities in the past. But as those societies encountered governments who wanted to, quote, civilize them, progress has been a costly enterprise. Pastoralists are nomadic. They need to be in order to move to where there's good pasture for their herds. For thousands of years, they've formed sociopolitical groups with well-established traditions that have the effect of regulating rangeland use and preventing overgrazing. Collectively, they formed lineages, clans, and tribes to help regulate and defend the landscape. Quote, progress for pastoralists has meant roads coming into their grazing lands, water wells being drilled, and government restrictions on where they can and cannot graze. Along with the roads came small businesses, mostly run by outsiders. The grazing was mostly restricted to the plains, which provided some of the best grasslands, and fresh water supplies helped populations grow. But soon towns sprang up around the water wells, and before long the once nomadic pastoralists find their cattle are overgrazing the savanna landscape, turning it into an arid desert. In the dry season, they used to move their animals to the hills and mountains, but these were now off limits and occupied by farmers whose crops would be ruined by the vast herds of foraging livestock. With global warming compounding the problem, African desert landscapes, some of which were savanna grasslands just a generation ago, are expanding. Tensions are high among the various pastoralist groups and major intertribal conflict has broken out in Sudan, Ethiopia, and Kenya. What does progress look like there? Better weapons, 
ecological deterioration, food shortages, and malnutrition. Meanwhile, a similar pattern is unfolding for the Swidden farmers. They've been encouraged to grow cash crops instead of food crops and to plant more intensively than ever before. Only now they must depend on cash to meet their needs, and more often than not, this means a low-cost, low-quality diet that keeps them consistently unhealthy, poor, and more and more dependent on the very governments that tried to bring them progress. For those living near towns, many less successful pastoralists and farmers try their luck looking for a cash-paying job. They head towards the urban population centers where they swell the ranks of the slums. And now let's hear some voicemail. So I think progress is relative, um, especially whenever you're looking at the species. Um, I think it's very ethnocentric um, for the simple fact that, I mean, how do you know if one is modern compared to the other? I mean, there's so many different things that different species do you really can't quantify that. That's not something that you should quantify. Um, there's also the, the thing about the advanced civilization and how do we know that we're actually advanced? I mean, for all we know, there's some inner, uh, inner otherworldly creatures that are far superior. We don't know. Um, so I think progress just shouldn't be considered with, uh, species evaluation. I have a great picture from my first trip to Africa. It was a family photo of uh, the family with which I was staying in Africa. And there's a dozen or so people there. And uh, I'll, I'll see if I can post this picture online, if I can find it. It always strikes people when they look at that picture of how healthy people look. And in particular, they focus on their teeth. People have beautiful full sets of teeth. And they have absolutely no dental health, uh, access to dental health coverages out there. No dentists whatsoever. Yet they've got these beautiful teeth. Well, gosh, their diet um, consists largely of milk. Um, which is um, you know excellent for your teeth. You get plenty of protein from uh, meat and blood from their animal resources. And um, I found that most people actually brushed quote brushed their teeth by chewing on these uh, fibrous sticks that they would uh, use to, to to brush their teeth with. I tried doing it myself, but my tongue would go numb after a little while, but uh, sure, it seemed to work. So I found it interesting to read this quote from Hooten, uh, written in 1945, uh, field work done in the 30s. He wrote, There's nothing new in the observation that savages, or people living under primitive conditions, have, in general, excellent teeth. Nor is it news that most civilized populations possess wretched teeth, which begin to decay almost before they have erupted. So apparently this observation that um, people living out our traditional peoples, indigenous peoples, um, have great teeth is, a, is an, old, uh, an old anthropological observation. In 
In John Bodley's article, The Price of Progress, he makes it sound as if progress is a problem that we can solve, presumably by leaving societies with less economic development alone. But that's not how the world works. As you saw in Los Altos de Cruzeiro, people want the elusive benefits of progress, like healthier living, education, human rights, and a better future for their children. Unfortunately, these things have barely reached Western civilization, and they've been trying for 4,000 years. For most of the world, progress has been a dog that bites, and a mirage of better things to come.